This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Funding for Igeret Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. The bottom of page 1055. So he explained that how could there be a division, a divide amongst ourselves and Hashem and God? And he says it's like a one-way divide from our part, not from God's part. From God's part, there could be no separation. God is with us even when we sin. God is with us. The separation is from our end, from our part. We turn our backs. We have turned away. But even when we turn away... The breath of God is there. It's just you're blocking it. You put a blockage. You're not allowing the breath through. So the breath can go through. It's not like speech. Speech can go through even if there's a blockage. You could be standing on one side of the door and someone else on the other side of the door and I can hear you. I can hear you through the door. The sound waves go through. But when you breathe, your breath is blocked. And it doesn't matter if it's a door or if it's a paper. You put a paper and you breathe, the breath is blocked. So the breath is there. The breath of God is there. Waiting for you to remove the blockage, to open the door, and it's right there. So from God's point of view, God is there. With you. In your sin, God is there. The Baal Shem Tev said, the word sin is spelled in Hebrew, ches, Tes Aleph. Chet. The Aleph is silent. You only hear the Ches and the Tes. Chet. He says, and that's what sin is all about. Aleph refers to Hashem, the One, God. God is everywhere. There's no space empty. Even in the sin, God is everywhere. But this Aleph is silent. How could you sin? You've created the block. You've created the blockage. God is here. But you've created the blockage. You don't allow God's breath to go through. The Aleph is silent. That's why you can sin. Were you to be conscious of Aleph, of Hashem, it would be impossible to sin. But even when you sin and you've blocked out, you've created a barrier, that barrier is only from your end. The breath is right there, waiting for you in a moment. The moment you remove the barrier, the breath will end. And he explained that there's different levels of the soul. You have a level of breath where God is constantly breathing into you. And that's something that has to constantly be renewed. That level, the slightest blockage interferes, creates a barrier. When you're breathing, it doesn't matter if it's a thick door or if it's a paper. You put anything in the way, the breath cannot, cannot reach beyond the blockage. And so when a, when a person sins, any sin, even the slightest sin, that interferes with the breath of Hashem. It's constantly 
nourishing you, nurturing you, and giving you life. You've cut yourself off from the breath of life, from the source of life. But then there is a level of the soul where the soul, which is compared to a rope, where the soul already enters into the body, the level, the conscious level of the soul, that interfaces with the body, interfaces you know, with, with the physical world. And that level, it's like a rope. Once you've lowered the rope, the rope is there, the rope is here. You don't have to constantly recreate it. The rope has been lowered down, the rope is here, it's present, on the bottom floor. But the rope remains connected to the top. One end of the rope is connected to the other end of the rope. And by you tugging your end of the rope, you're able to tug, achieve a tug on the top of the rope. So you're here, and it's there, and there's a connection. A modern, modern analogy would be the NASA scientist could be sitting in Houston, and him pushing a button... Millions of miles away, the satellite moves here, moves there, does this, does that. So there's a connection, even though it's so far. You're sitting here, you're grounded, you're in Earth, and you're limited, finite, limited by time and space, and yet, by you touching a button here, you can have an impact millions of miles away. So the rope is already, there's a connection already. It doesn't have to constantly be renewed. The connection is there. And by you tugging your end of the rope, you achieve a tug also on the top of the rope. Now, this rope is made up of 613 strands. Every mitzvah is a strand, like a thread. And all the threads together make up the rope. What happens when you sin? In this case already, you have to take action to sever the connection. The connection that's already there. In the first case, when God is breathing into you, and the breath is constant, and God is constantly breathing, there, the moment you create an obstruction, the breath can no longer reach and can't go further. You block the breath. But when it comes to the rope, the rope is already here. Now I'm taking action to sever the rope, to sever the connection. So here already there's a distinction what level of a sin, what kind of a sin. If you do a regular sin, it's like you sever one strand, one thread. So you've weakened the rope, but you haven't severed the connection. Connection is still there. It's a little weakened. It's still there. When you create, commit a sin where the Torah says your life will be cut off, you don't do circumcision, you don't celebrate Passover, you eat on Yom Kippur, the Torah says you'll cut off, then you've taken a knife and you've cut the rope. You've cut this, you've disconnected yourself. You're saying being Jewish means nothing to me. And you've cut the connection. That, that already affects the whole connection. That, that shakes you to the core. That touches you to the core. That destroys your connection. Cutters, cut off. You know, a person is a microcosm. What's true in the microcosm is also true in the macrocosm. The way... God breathes into our nostrils where God breathes in our connection, the soul, and his connection to above. Because even, as he explained, that the Jewish soul, even when it comes into this world, it really belongs above. It's really more connected to the world above than it is to this world. It's made of a different other stuff. It's made of a different substance. It comes from the internal. It comes from God's breath. 
And even the speech comes from the internal aspect of speech. That's why the Torah says, I breathe into his nostrils when he's describing the way the soul enters into the body. So even when the, the soul enters into the body, it's more connected and more rooted to the internal, to the godly, to the divine. That's why a Jew responds so naturally to anything divine and to anything godly. We get excited about godly things. We dance from joy. Someone would walk into a synagogue in Simchas Torah, you would think he walked into a madhouse. People are dancing with the Torah. It's like a, a deaf person walks into a, a, a bar without, without music. He can't hear any music. And he sees people like dancing. He thinks they're nuts. They're crazy. He doesn't hear the music. So a person who's living in this physical world, and, and he doesn't hear the music. All he knows about is money, business, success, power, fame, indulgence, pleasure. That's his whole life. Beginning, middle, and end. Morning to night. And he walks into a synagogue and, Yom, and, Torah, and he sees Jews are dancing. They, they didn't strike it rich. Why are they dancing? What are they doing? What are they dancing? He sees they're holding a Torah and they're dancing. And they're excited and they're thrilled. And they don't hear the music. This is the Torah. This is the blueprint for reality. This is the divine. This is Hashem. This is the infinite. This is a person who is tone deaf, a person who doesn't hear the music. He's grounded in this world and has no feeling and no connection to anything godly, to anything that's egoless, to anything that's beyond your ego and beyond yourself and greater than all of us put together. And the infinite and Hashem and Hashem's essence, he doesn't relate to any of us. It's like the story with the... Uh, someone, someone came to the fifth of Baba Jireb and he says, you know, I don't, believe, I don't believe in angels. I don't believe in God. So he gave him an analogy. He says, you know, these two uh, Nobel Prize winners, scientists, world-famous scientists, were traveling. In the 19th century, were traveling to a conference, international conference of the most brilliant minds to discuss the latest breakthroughs in physics. So you have three travelers. You have the two scientists. You have the wagon driver. This was pre, pre-Model T, pre-Ford. And you have the horses. Everyone is looking forward to arrive at their destination. The two, the two scientists are discussing the biggest breakthroughs, the latest breakthroughs in scientific understanding of reality. The cutting edge physics. They're envisioning they're going to get to the conference and they're going to meet their, their like-minded the colleagues and they're going to be discussing and the most subtle concepts. The wagon driver can't wait to get to Berlin because he's going to get paid and he's going to hit the bars and he's going to have a good night, have a good time, have a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to this for months. And the horses <laughs> can't wait because they know that there's a nice barn waiting for them and there's a lot of good hay. Everyone is occupied in their thoughts. The, the horse is dreaming of his hay. The wagon driver is dreaming of his bar. And the two professors are dreaming of, you know, of their, the conference and the concepts they'll be discussing. 
So just because the horse can't imagine that there's anything beyond hay <laughs> means, means that the conference is not a conference, that it doesn't exist. Because in your world, nothing exists. All that exists is me, myself, and I. You're so closed off from reality. You're so blinded. You put a finger in front of your eyes, you're blinding yourself to reality. You're blind to the infinite. You're blind to godliness. You're blind to Hashem. You're blind to everything that's real. And your whole world exists. Money, power, fame. It's your whole world. The whole, nothing else exists. It's you and the horse. But because you're a horse, that means that there's no other reality. <laughs> so the Jewish soul is not a horse. <laughs> the Jewish soul has an has a instinct, an inkling, a connection. Even the simplest Jew. Not only the great rabbis, mystics, and scholars. When a Jew, even the simplest Jew, hears something godly, a mitzvah, dancing with the Torah, you just respond. You can't even explain it. Sometimes you yourself, you're not even sure what it is. You don't need to understand it fully. How do I describe it? The infinite, godly. I don't understand it myself. But, but something inside of you instinctively responds. And you dance with every fiber of your being and every bone in your body. When you hear the sound of the shofar, you tremble. It touches you. It affects you very deeply even if you can't explain it. So if the Jew is rooted and connected, even though we're grounded and we're down to earth and we're very much part of this world, and, but nevertheless, the root, the source, is connected to something heavenly, to something godly. This is across the board. So you have different levels. You have a level of the soul which is directly connected to God's breath. And then you have a level of the soul which already the conscious level of the soul, which interfaces with the body and the physical world, and there it's more like a rope. There's a connection, but it's not a connection as to constantly be renewed. So what's true on the microcosm is true in the macrocosm. When God creates the world, it's also the same way. There are different levels of creation. You have God creates the world through his speech creates the world through his speech. The whole world is created with, through God's speech, God's utterances. God said there should be heaven, there was heaven. God said there should be earth. God said there should be light. All the ten utterances that we find in the book of Genesis. And everything that exists in this world is already included in that. As we learn in the second part of Tanya, you can go back to it in LessonsInTanya.com, chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, that everything has a Hebrew name. And everything, every object that exists in this world ultimately is found in the letters and words in the, in, the, in the ten utterances in the beginning of the book of Genesis. Because there are different ways of configuring letters and putting letters together. And these are the building blocks of creation. But that's external. The most external aspect of godliness is that God speaks, so to speak, just like within the person. You speak. That's external to you. You don't need speech for yourself. So God speaks. And you formulate the words. And the words are already formulated and defined. And that's what sustains and gives life to everything that exists in this world. Then you have an internal aspect of speech. What's an internal aspect of speech? The pleasure. It gives you pleasure. You hear a speaker... And the speaker is just loves what he's saying and the subject matter. And it's, it's, it's not just he's saying words. You have a person who also speaks. He puts everyone to sleep. 
And then you have a person who speaks, and he speaks passionately, and he speaks with excitement, enthusiasm, and it's alive. And it's... So you have speech when you have to speak. Your heart is not into it. Your soul is not into it. It's dead. You're speaking. It's lifeless. And then you have speech, which is alive, which is passionate. Just like a person could work. You can do work. Some people are fortunate. And the work that they do, they love. And then there are people who never do work that they hate. Their parents force them to become accountants. <laughs> they have no interest. And they're stuck all their life doing a work, a job that they hate. It bores them. They're bored to death. And it's not really what they would have wanted to do, but they just do it. So you have to do it. You have to pay your bills. You have to do what you have to do. But there's no pleasure and there's no... You just do it. And that's what happens every Rosh Hashanah. Every Rosh Hashanah, the world is recreated. It says in the night of Rosh Hashanah, the energy of the last year departs. And the next morning, when we blow the shofar, the world is renewed, revived with a new energy, renewed energy. The question is asked, Hasidus asked the question, how does the world exist from Rosh Hashanah night till the blowing of the shofar? If God removes his speech and God withdraws from creation, then the world should cease to exist. How, does the, how can the world exist for one moment without the divine speech that's constantly recreating it? And Hasidus answers, God does not withdraw his speech. The speech is there, present. But on Rosh Hashanah night, God withdraws his pleasure, his interest. He's no longer interested. He loses interest. Why am I recreating this world? This expression from the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, when you wake up every morning and you see that beautiful red sun, he says, you know what the sun is red? The sun is red from Bushra. The sun is red from shame. He says, who am I shining for? <laughs> so at the end of the year, God says, why, 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 why am I creating this world? Is this world giving me pleasure? Is this world fulfilling its purpose? And that's a question that hangs in the air from Rosh Hashanah night until the morning of Rosh Hashanah when the Jew blows the shofar and we once again coronate God as king of the universe and we willingly choose to enter into this relationship. God proposes, gives us his marriage proposal and the Jew, by blowing the shofar, we say, yes, we agree to the marriage. Now God is, renews his interest in creation. So what, what leaves on Rosh Hashanah night is not the words. If the words would leave, we would all cease to exist. The world would cease to exist. But it's the, it's the inner part of the speech. It's the pleasure. God loses interest in the pleasure. So he's doing it, but he's almost doing it mechanically. He's sustaining the world, but it's like lifeless. That's why the world is like asleep. It's like lifeless. And it's hanging in the air. Is God going to renew this relationship? Is this going to be a beautiful relationship? And depending on how much interest we evoke within God, that's what kind of blessed year we're going to have. If we reconnect with God on Rosh Hashanah in a sincere way, in a serious way, in a meaningful way, then we're blessed with a beautiful year. Then God has pleasure in creation. And He has pleasure with us. And then He blesses us. And blesses us with an abundance of health and success and wealth and everything that we need. 
So everything is decided on Rosh Hashanah. The quality of these 48 hours will decide the quality in the whole year. Who will live, who not, God forbid. Who, the whole thing we discuss in Rosh Hashanah, the whole prayer. So it's the inner aspect of the speech that's lost. Now, you have another level of creation where God creates through his thought. See, God is different than us. We speak and nothing happens. <laughs> God speaks and he creates. Not only does God speak and he creates, even God thinks and he creates. His thoughts also create. So, when God thinks, thought is much more internal than speech. And that's why you can't stop thinking. You can stop speaking. Some people could. They can't stop thinking. Because thought, even when you're dreaming, even when you're sleeping, you're dreaming, you're constantly thinking. Because thought is so internally connected to your soul. Just like your soul never stops. You don't stop living for a moment. You don't take a recess from life for a moment. You don't stop thinking. So thought is internal. That's why the, the flow, the blessings that come from God's thoughts, we just read about in the Torah last week. That's called the manna. The manna that came from heaven. And the manna was something very unique. It had divine properties to it. Even when it came into this world, it had divine properties to it. There was no waste. So therefore, for 40 years, that's why the Jews complained. For 40 years, they never went to the bathroom. Because they ate manna. There wasn't, they, they, never had to, they never had to go. Everything, there was no waste. It was totally wholesome food. No one had to be on a diet. Everyone was healthy. <laughs> Everything was 100% nutritious and wholesome. <laughs> but the manna, because the manna was like food from heaven, it was a divine food. You ask any child in the desert, where does bread come from? And any child knows where bread comes from. Of course, it comes from heaven. Because <laughs> manna came from heaven. It was such a divine food that it had to come each and every day. You only had enough for that day. It says if you collected more than you needed, at the end of the day, all you had was what you needed. Right? It was all gone. No one had more, no one had less. There was no retirement plans and there was no investment <laughs> plans. Nobody from the richest to the poorest had a penny more than he needed. You had all the food that you needed just for that day. That's it. The next day, where my manna came again. Not like bread. We have bread. We store it. We... Why does bread we can keep? We can hold on to it. Manna we can't hold on to. Because manna comes from God's thoughts. It comes from the spiritual realm. It comes from the divine. And therefore, it's like God's breath. It has to constantly be renewed. What, yesterday is gone. Yesterday's flow is gone. You need a new flow. You need a new drawing down. Constantly. And that's why the manna did not come down on Shabbat. Why didn't the manna come down on Shabbat? Because what happens on Shabbat? Shabbat, it says God 
speech is elevated into God's thought. Instead of the world receiving its sustenance from God's speech, the world receives its sustenance from God's thoughts. That's why in Shabbat the whole world is elevated. Six days a week, God's thought is expressed, His creativity is expressed in the speech. The speech remains. But that level of thought that's now expressing itself in speech, on Shabbat, that level of thought withdraws inward and is elevated and reconnects and, and replenishes and refreshes and comes back to its original source within God. The way God is for Himself alone, not the way He interacts with the world outside. And that's why the world goes on as regular. A non-Jew is not allowed to keep Shabbat. The world goes on as regular. Externally, God's speech is present. The world is constantly being created. But the inner part, the inner part of creation, the creativity, the godly part of creation, that part withdraws and reconnects to God's essence. And that's why the Jewish soul, every Jew, 14 million Jews, no matter who you are, where you are, every Jew is connected to Shabbat. Is able to connect to God's transcendent self. The way God is alone for himself. The way God is thinking for himself. And that's why every Jew must keep Shabbat. God forbid a Jew doesn't keep Shabbat. You desecrate Shabbat. You, you violate, you desecrate, you're affecting this connection, you're affecting this internal connection of the world to Hashem. And when you keep Shabbat, Shabbat becomes the source of all the blessings for the whole week. Just like the manna. The manna did not fall on Shabbat. But the manna of the whole week was blessed on the Shabbat. And it's from the holiness of the Shabbat that the manna was able to come all week. And so too today. It's the holiness of Shabbat. By keeping Shabbat, by keeping Shabbat holy, that's when Shabbat becomes blessed and Shabbat becomes a source of blessing for the whole week. Then when, this, when God's thought re- comes back into the speech with a renewed uh, connection, and therefore it brings along all the blessings. So these different levels correspond to the four levels we're describing here in this chapter and the next chapter. The rest of creation is God's speech, external. And God spoke and it came into being. While the Jewish soul comes from God's breath, and God's breath is the substance of his soul. Not that God spoke and it came into being. God's breath is our soul. So that's the source of the soul. The source of the soul comes from like God's thought, the way God thinks for himself, the way God is for himself alone, transcendent from the rest of creation. That's the source of the Jewish soul. A piece of the divine essence. Chelek Elokah. Then you have the way God's thought animates the speech. Like during the week, God's thought animates the speech. That's the internal level of speech. That's the level of the soul. When the soul enters into the body, and God spoke and said, let's make man, because God is bringing this soul, which is transcendent, and bringing it into, allowing it to enter into the body and interface with the body. But nevertheless, it's rooted and connected to God's breath 
the sense that it comes from the internal level of God's speech. Like we said earlier, the source of speech, the hey, the ha, the substance of a speech, the internal aspect of a speech. Not the way the speech is already formed and rigid and defined, but the internal, the soul of the speech, the thought that animates the speech. The pl- that's the level of the soul, even when the soul enters into the body, it's still connected to God's, the internal aspect of speech. And that level we said that even the slightest sin can disconnect and create a barrier between God's breath and, and the soul. And then you have the level of God's speech. And within the level of God's speech, you have two, you have two levels. You have a level of God's speech the pleasure of speech, when a person speaks with passion and excitement and you, you enjoy and you're into what you're speaking. That's the level, like on Rosh Hashanah, that departs, that level departs in the night of Rosh Hashanah. And the world is like asleep. God loses his interest, his pleasure, so to speak, until Rosh Hashanah we renew the contract and we renew our marriage. Um, and God renews his interest. That's the level of the rope. That even when the soul is in this world, there's a rope. There's a connection. The relationship is already formed. It's forged. It's there. And if you sin, it can't disconnect it. It's already there. But when you sin, you can weaken it. You cut off a strand. You cut off a thread. And God forbid you do a big sin, then you cut off the whole rope. But even on that level, the speech remains. Just like on Rosh Hashanah night, even Rosh Hashanah that falls on a Shabbat, Rosh Hashanah night, the world remains. It's, it's the external level. God's speech remains. So ultimately, even a Jew violates his sin with the Torah, says the rope has been cut off. The breath is not reaching there. And the rope has been cut off. And on all conscious levels, you see there's no connection. The Jew has completely severed his connection. The truth is that even that Jew remains connected. Because there's a core connection that can never be interrupted. And that's why teshuva always helps. No matter how far gone we are, no matter how much we sin, no matter how much we messed up, no matter even if we violated all 613 mitzvah, all our lives, is the last breath of our life. In that brief moment, in that split second, we can turn our whole life around. Because the essence always remains. Because ultimately, each and every one of us has a piece of the divine essence. And just like we don't have the freedom of choice to destroy God, we don't have the freedom of choice to destroy that connection. No matter how sordid, no matter how painful, no matter what terrible things we've done, ultimately, that core connection remains unaffected. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Just like God's speech. Even when the other three levels are gone. But the speech remains and it's steady and it's unchanging and it's constant. This represents ultimately, even when a Jew sins and even the worst sins, there's, there's always a connection. And, it, and all these interruptions and barriers that we're discussing and disconnections, ultimately, it's on the surface. Or even not on the surface, even deeper than the surface but it can't touch the core. The core remains untouched. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And that's why we can always come home. We can always reconnect. 
and one split second, just turn around, and one moment, you can say to Hashem, I am yours. Whatever happened between us in the past, I am yours. And that, all that takes is one split second. Yes, I have a lot of fixing to do, and a lot of mending to do, and I have to recreate the rope, and I have to allow the breath to come through, and I have to allow... That's details. But the core, the essence of Teshuvah is when a Jew turns to Hashem and says, Hashem, I know I rebelled. I know I was lousy, I was terrible, I was horrible. I ran away. I ran away from home. But now, please, take me back. I'm yours. That's the essence of Teshuvah. And that is so available, so accessible, and so easy for every Jew to do. And that can be done in one moment. And that's really the thrust of the whole letter of Teshuvah, this whole part of the Tanya, how close it is, how dear and near it is for each and every Jew to reconnect and to come Let back up. Let me just ask you a question. If, if a person keeps all the mitzvahs their whole life, right. so obviously the connection with God is very strong, and then a person doesn't keep any of their mitzvahs their whole life, and then all of a sudden does tshuva, can, how can the connection be equal? It's not equal. It can never be equal. The, the Baal is greater than the greater, Tzaddik. Greater. It's greater. Than yeah. the Tzaddik. Even if a person keeps all the mitzvahs their whole life. Yes. The place where the Baal can reach, the Tzaddik cannot reach. Look, only once a year, the high priest, representing the Jewish people, on the holiest day of the year, is allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. Only on Yom Kippur, the day of Teshuvah. Teshuvah propels him forward. He's allowed to enter into the innermost secret chambers, which all year round he's not allowed in. Because when you're a tzaddik, you're limited. Even if you keep all the mitzvot, you're limited. But the Baal the intensity of that return is so powerful. And you touch the essence of God that you're able to enter into the Holy of Holies. So the Baal is greater than the tzaddik. We learn from the Baal the tzaddik aspires, they should also, without sinning, you should have the advantages of a baltruva without actually sinning. How can you reach such a level? It's a whole separate discussion. Also, by helping someone else become a baltruva, you can reach that level. But the baltruva is the most intense, is the most powerful. It catapults you to such a level. You know, it's like when you have a relationship and the relationship is... And then you, re- you reconcile. The relationship is much deeper, much richer, much more profound, much more powerful than it was before when the relationship was never, ever challenged. The tzaddik goes straight in the narrow and never sinned. You know, before every breakthrough, there's a breakdown. When we have the breakdown, then you have the breakthrough. That breakthrough is so powerful, so intense, so profound. It shakes you to your very core, your very essence. The tzaddik doesn't have to go so deep. He doesn't have to touch his core and his essence. Tzaddik is, uh, you know, everything is on a conscious level. So that's, that's the level of the Baal Absolutely. Okay, so let's finish the chapter. This is analogous to a thick rope woven of 613 thin strands. So too the rope of the downward flow mentioned above is comprised of a 613 mitzvah each mitzvah being individual thin strand. When one violates one of them, Hashem forbid, 
a thin strand consisting of that particular commandment is severed. Every Jew receives his vitality from all 613 mitzvot. Although many mitzvot are not applicable today, many mitzvot are not applicable to us ever. We're not priests, we're not kings, many mitzvot are all very limited. Nevertheless, every Jew is connected and rooted in all 613 mitzvot. And we receive our vitality, our divine vitality, from all 613 mitzvot. In general, it said, 248 limbs of a body correspond to 248 mitzvot, 365 veins correspond to the 365 prohibitions. So every part of our body, even physical part of our body, is rooted and connected and receives its vitality from one mitzvah. So it's a rope that's made up of 613 strands. Continue. Should an individual violate many commandments, Hashem forbid, then many strands are severed and the rope is grievously weakened. Sins punishable by excision or death by divine agency cause the entire rope to be severed, heaven forfend. But even if one has incurred excision or death, there yet remains an impression within him of his divine soul. So the question is, as a consequence, when a person sins a prohibition where the Torah says you cut off your soul, you've cut off your rope, not only don't you allow the breath to flow, that you've already done a long time ago, because even the slightest sin stops the flow of the divine breath, the breath of life. But even the rope that's already here, you've actively done a sin and cut yourself off. How could you live? As a consequence, not a punishment, it's a consequence that you die. A Jew can't live. Without the divine life, you can't live. You physically can't live. So why, why don't you die instantly? The moment the Jew sins, a sin which you cut, the, cut off the rope, this is your life, this is your sustenance, this is what you're all about. So you should die instantly. Yet, we know that the punishment of Karis is 50 years, and if it's a, a sin in the hands of heaven, it's 60 years. So how is it possible you can still live? And through this, he may live until 50. In the case of excision, or 60 years. In the case of death by divine agency, but no more. So the divine energy, divine life, leaves an impression. It, it, still, it still keeps on going. You know, even though you've cut off... You know, the chicken sometimes out of head still moves a little. <laughs> so you've cut off your head, you've cut off your source, but you're still moving. I mean, you're dead inside. You're basically dead. You've cut yourself off from the source. But there's still an impression, all that life. So you can keep on going until the age of 50 or other sins at the age of 60. But then that life force has petered out. And then physically you die. It's not a punishment, it's a consequence. A Jew who disconnects himself from the divine, physically can't live. You know, it's interesting, Nachmanari says, and the question is asked, why does the Torah tell us about reward and punishment? The Torah is trying to bribe us. We have to serve God, not for any ulterior motive, to serve God. And the Torah doesn't even mention the world to come. So Nachmanides has many, many different answers. Nachmanides gives a very original answer. Nachmanides says that the reward of the world to come, that's a natural reward. The Torah doesn't have to tell us. That's natural. If you live the spiritual life, your soul continues to live and will bask in the, in the light And you know, after 120 years, after the soul passes on, the person passes on. 
But the Torah is teaching us a novelty, something that's miraculous, something that's counterintuitive. You would never make that connection. That if I learn Torah and I do mitzvot, it's going to rain. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to be financially successful. What, what's the connection? I put on tefillin and it's going to rain. <laughs> if I stop putting on tefillin, it's going to stop raining. What's, what's the connection? I don't see the connection. That's what the Torah is to teach us. That for a Jew, there's a miraculous connection. You can't divorce the physical from the spiritual. The physical is just a symptom of the spiritual. So it's a consequence, it's not a punishment. When, when, when you've sinned, and you, we play around with our spiritual health, we destroy our spiritual health, we're living a drunk lifestyle. Just like drunk food destroys our physical health, we live a drunk lifestyle destroys our spiritual health. It can help but affect our physical health because by a Jew you can't separate the physical from the spiritual. So yes, the impression of that, all that health maybe carries us a little more, 40, 50, 60, and then it peters. Then for some reason, why the magical number 50, 60, we don't know how souls work, but then that spiritual energy, there's, there's no more juice left, there's no more energy left, and therefore a Jew physically a non-Jew does this, it makes no difference. Because that, he's not getting his life source. His physical life source is not connected to the divine. So if he's not living a divine life, he's living a divine life, it doesn't, it doesn't have that impact. But for a Jew, if we're, dis- if we're dead inside, if the soul is dead inside, just like we have to eat and we have to nourish and nurture ourselves physically, the soul also needs nurturing and nourishing. Three days go by and we don't eat, we feel weak. The body-soul connection grows weak. That's why we read the Torah every three days. We can't allow for three days to go by and we don't read the Torah. A three days go by and the Jew doesn't study Torah, it's like you're starving yourself to death. The body-soul connection grows weak and we become weak. But it's not only spiritually, it affects us physically. So when a Jew lives a life internally, a life full of contradictions. A life which is split down the middle. A life which is almost like a split personality. We're a Jew inside, we're a non-Jew outside, we live half. It tears us apart inside. It rips us up inside. It, it creates such discontent. We're in agony. We're in pain. We're agitated. That's why Jews invented psychology. Hmm. That's why most psychologists are Jews and most of the patients are Jews. Till today, go into any psychology department, any university, it's all Jewish. (laughs) Because the Jewish soul is so agitated and so angry. Because you you can't live a life. If you live a life, you become torn inside. Firstly, you're guilt ridden, (laughs) you live the guilty conscience. You can try to delude yourself. You know, they say if you do a sin once, you feel guilty. You do it twice, you don't feel so guilty. You do it three times, it becomes a mitzvah, it becomes a crusade. It's this right, that right. You know, listen, you have a weakness. Go hide under the table and be quiet. Now it becomes, it becomes, it becomes a, a right and it becomes a mitzvah. It becomes a holy mitzvah. Unfortunately. Tragically. But the only one you're deluding is Yourself. You're not, and even yourself you're not deluding. Because in, inside, 
Your neshama is eating away at you. Your soul is eating away at you. You feel that guilty conscience. You can never make peace with it. You can delude yourself and the New York Times can say you're wonderful and it's wonderful and it's progress. Inside you know it's not progress. It's not wonderful. It's eating away at you. It's gnawing away. It's eating away at your soul. You don't feel one. You feel more isolated. You feel more lonely. No one is doing you any favors by pretending that it's wonderful. A person who's dying, 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 has a heart condition, you tell him, oh, it's wonderful. You're not doing him any favors. He's dying. You're telling him it's wonderful. It's not wonderful. It isolates you. It deepens your isolation. You can't separate the spiritual from the material. So therefore, after 50, 60 years, the Jew would physically die. He couldn't live anymore. He cut himself off from a source of life. Not only from the breath of life, he cut himself off from the rope that he was hanging on to for dear life. And he severed the rope. See, it's, it's blowing in the air, in the wind. There's, there's nothing to hold on to. See, he's schlepping along until 50, 60, and then it's over. That's why they would make a celebration. The rabbis would make a celebration when they turn 60. Make a big celebration. It means that they, they uh, did not die. They phys- they, if they did not die physically, that meant that their soul was alive and healthy and vibrant. And As to the statement attributed to the Arizal that the makif, a transcendent level of life force, and is such an individual and so on, though unable to receive vitality from the internal aspect of Hashem, he is still able to receive vitality from this transcendent level of Hashem. If this is indeed so, why can he not live longer than 50 or 60 years? This is irrelevant to the life of the physical body, which cannot survive once there remains no vestige of the divine soul, and applies only until 50 years. I.e., the transcendent level is also found within an individual only so long as he is able to remain alive by virtue of the impression of the divine soul that is still within his body. In this era, when a Jew's vitality reaches him through becoming clothed in unholy media, it is possible for a person to live even after his soul has been sundered from its source in the four-letter name of Hashem. This is why it is now possible for someone liable to excision or death by divine agency to live longer than 50 or 60 years. And during this time, the holy life force, which must be found within a Jew, is received from the transcendent level of the Arizal teachings. Every Jew has that connection, that love, innate, inherent love for Hashem, for godliness. But when a person reaches such a level, we are on a conscious level. He's completely divorced and disconnected from his Jewishness, a self-hating Jew. There's one thing a person sins, but he's proud to be Jewish. He just listens. He does listens to human weakness. But I'm proud to be Jewish, and I don't feel... feels pretty guilty about what he's doing, but, you know, it's human weakness. It's another thing when a person becomes... Like he loses his conscience. He has no, no longer any conscience. Couldn't care less about his Jewishness. And even becomes a self-hating Jew. That Jew is still a Jew. 
But that Jewishness now becomes transcendent. It's, it, it hovers over him. It's above him. It's, 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 it's not internal. On a conscious level, he's completely cut off, cut himself off from his people. But it's that nevertheless it remains, that connection remains. But it hovers over him. That's what Arizal says, and now that connection transcends him. It's, it, it, it's, it hovers over him, it's above him, but it doesn't enter into his awareness, into his consciousness. In his awareness and consciousness, he doesn't even step foot on Shul and Yom Kippur. Completely disconnected, completely divorced himself from his people. But, the, uh, but nevertheless, like we find the expression explained earlier in the first part of the Tanya, the end of chapter um, 35, that whenever ten Jews gather, and also at the end of, uh, the end of chapter 11, whenever ten, the, ten Jews gather, the Shekhinah is there. The Shekhinah is present. When ten Jews come together, even if they're not studying Torah, ten Jews are sitting in a cafe in Tel Aviv, and ten Jews together are together, there's holiness there. But the expression that's used is the Shekhinah hovers over them. It's not internalized. Because they're not studying Torah. They don't feel any conscious connection to anything godly. They don't identify necessarily with their Jewishness. But the Shekhinah is there. God's presence is still there. It's a holy gathering, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, whether they want to or not. There is holiness there. Because the Shekhinah is there, but it just hovers over them. But this cannot substitute for their inner life. In order to live, physically live, you need an internal life. So once a Jew cuts himself off from that internal life, cuts off the rope, cuts off his connection to the divine name and his divine sustenance, then he can no longer live past 50 and 60. As I'll explain in the next chapter, this is only true in the times of the temple, when the Jews were, were on a very high level. When a Jew was spiritually in tune, the reason we had the temple is because the temple means that we were on a very high level. The temple was a manifestation of the fact that we lived a very holy life and we were in tune with spiritual reality. When you came to the temple, you saw miracles. Miracles there were natural. You were living in a different dimension. You were in touch with a different dimension. But when the temple is destroyed, it means that we're not in touch, we're not in tune with that inner dimension of reality, with the truer dimension of reality. And we're living, we're getting a very distorted picture of reality. And therefore, in this distorted picture, we're not so sensitive. So if we sin it's, and we disconnect ourselves spiritually, it doesn't directly impact us physically. We can still continue to physically live. When you're so in tune, you're so in touch, you can't live with yourself. You can't, you can't live with yourself. Something inside of you is eating away. You feel hollow inside. You feel dead inside. And that physically affects you and then you reach a point where you physically die. You die young because you can't take it anymore. You can't, you, can't, you can't live with yourself. When a person is not spiritually in tune, you're not spiritually insensitive, you're spiritually insensitive, then you're not in tune. You don't feel. So you can continue to live even though you cut off from godliness and you cut off spiritually, you can still continue to live. But as we'll discuss at the end of the next chapter, as we mentioned earlier, that the truth is that the fact that even a Jew who cut himself off from his people and yet can, could always do teshuva tells us 
that the essence of a Jew always remains connected. And no matter how cut off you think you are, and even the self-hating Jew, ultimately, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Every Jew is connected. And, and, and you don't kid the non-Jew, because the non-Jew hates the self-hating Jew perhaps more, more than he, than he hates the self-respecting Jew. The self-respecting Jew, at least he respects. The self-hating Jew, he treats like dirt. He has zero respect for him. But he treats him like a Jew. He'll never treat him like an equal. He never will be, because a Jew will always remain a Jew, no matter what. So that's the advantage that we see today in the times, even in the times of exile, in times of darkness. We see that unconditional love and that unconditional connection that every Jew has with Hashem. That even when he severed his rope, and even when the breath can't, or can't he created a barrier, doesn't allow the breath to, to enter, to go through. And nevertheless, he's cut off every strand and every, all four names of Hashem has been completely severed and cut off. But the quintessence remains. And that unconditional love is exposed today more than ever and ex- is exposed in the Baltruva more than ever. Because the Baltruva has been cut off. He sinned. He completely cut himself off. And in one second, he can come roaring back like that, reconnect so easily. That tells us how unconditional. He has revealed how unconditional that connection is, how profound, how deep that connection is. Because a tzaddik who grows up in the straight and the narrow, you can say it's conditional. He grows up in a holy milieu, he lives in a holy environment, so your relationship is conditional on, on, on external factors. But how do I know that a Jew's relationship to Hashem is unconditional? Only in the case of the Baltruva, the sinner, who's completely cut himself off and severed. And even done a sin where you get cutters, cut off the rope, cut off himself from every name of Hashem, Yud, in the hay, in the Vav, in the hay, totally severed and disconnected. And yet, in one split second, he can come back home. This shows us that this relationship, it's not religion, it's not mysticism, that's external, that's conditional. This is unconditional. This is core, this is essence. That's how deep and that's how profound every single Jew's relationship with Hashem is. And once you realize that, then you want to live it and express it every day of your life. Then you want to become like the tree. You want that relationship to grow. You want that relationship to flourish. You don't want it to remain a seed, potential that's buried and hidden. You want it, the seed to take root and you want deep roots and you want a beautiful tree and you want luscious, luscious, luscious fruits. Live a Jewish life. Live your potential. Realize that potential. Express that potential. Express that relationship in all its ramifications, in all its beauty, in all its pleasure. Luxuriate in your relationship with Hashem. Find pleasure in your relationship with Hashem. Your Judaism should be passionate, should be joyful, should be exciting, should be thrilling, should be loving and positive and joyful and all-encompassing. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.